This year, the oil and gas industry will spend tens of billions of dollars on digital technology. The potential for value is off the charts, but how do you protect your investment from the evils that lurk beyond? In the words of Stephen King, there's no harm in hoping for the best as long as you're prepared for the worst. An industry under pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. Hey everybody, welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast. Today is going to be fun-filled because I think I might be breaking a record for how many people, how many guests I have on the show at one time, and not only on the show at one time, but none of us are in the same place. And so you guys are going to have to bear with us while we try to turn this into a natural conversation. But it's going to be fun. Today we are talking about disasters. So what could be more fun than talking about disasters? But before we get to that, I have to remind all of our faithful listeners and even the unfaithful ones to please leave us some reviews, good reviews, bad reviews. We take them all. If you leave a bad review, that's good, but let us know what you'd like to see us doing differently. And then that's how we learn. The good reviews are great and they always look good for our sponsor, Cognite, who I want to thank really quickly. And then I will say some more about them at the end. Before we get to our host of guests today. I want to go back to this book that I've been looking at here. I've mentioned this a couple times on the show called Groundbreakers. And Groundbreakers is the story of oil field technology and the people who made it happen. Written by Mark Mao and Henry Edmondson. So you know I've been a lot of you know that I've been on this kick about proving that oil and gas is not late to the party when it comes to technology and we've been doing it really well for a long time. So here we are in chapter 13. And the background on this is about seismic recording, which is completely unrelated to our topic today, but there's an aspect of it that is related, and we'll see how that comes together here in a minute. But here on, let's see here, we got page 131. So we're talking about recording seismic. And the foundation for recording magnetically was laid in 1929, when the Austrian-German engineer Fritz Flumer made the first magnetic tape by coating a long strip of paper with ferric oxide powder. The technology was further developed by, and my German friends, you're going to have to not laugh at me too hard when I try to say this. In fact, Franz Deinbacher, if you're out there, you just might want to hold your ears on this part. But a company called Badich Anilin und Soda Fabrik, which we, of course, know as BASF. So if we fast forward a couple of pages to here, to the 19... Now, remember, that was in 1929. In the 1960s... There were several breakthroughs, mostly from Texas Instruments, including the first, here it is, 1960, the first digital recording system, the ability to record digitally in the field on magnetic tape, and the first digital processing center. In a highly secretive GSI development supported by mobile and Texaco, the first transistorized digital field recording system was deployed in 1963. So there you are. Oil and gas goes digital in 1963. But there's also some talk in there about recording to tapes and BASF. Some of you are old enough to remember, at least I am old enough to remember the BASF tapes. And 
young young teenage boys trying to impress their girlfriends with clever mixtapes that we used to make. I'm not sure that ever worked out very well for me. But we, we also used to make them for road trips. So keep that tape thing in mind. And now we're going to come to our guests. And I'm going to start with, we have kind of two different We have people from two different companies or three different companies here, one company, depending on how you look at it. First, we have somebody who you know that I typically refer to as the valiant and noble Warren Spiewak who leads our street team, but he's also in the insurance business along in the corporate insurance business along with Mr. Kevin McCarthy. So those guys are on. I'm going to give you guys a chance to talk in a second. Let me cover the rest of them. We also have from a company called Protos Technologies, we have Matt Torres, who's in Chicago. Now, Warren and Kevin and I are, I think, in Houston. Matt's in Chicago. And we also have Bruce McKnight, who is in Atlanta. And then we have the CEO, Lance Thompson, who is in sunny, warm East Lansing, Michigan. And so that's the whole crew. Thank you guys all for being on. Let me see if we can sort of dissect the approach here. And real quick, before we get into the discussion, Lance, maybe give a quick overview of what is Protos and make sure you reference that early days of magnetic tape thing, or else my whole opener is just going to seem completely random. I don't know what magnetic tape is. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> well, okay, so, <laughs> yeah, Protos Technologies. We have been in the business of data storage and disaster recovery in the technological world of computers for 35 years. So my sarcasm aside, <laughs> I very well know what magnetic yeah, you, tape you is. Made, you made the mixtapes, right? You were right there with me making the mixtapes. I know you were. You probably were. I was. And I also want you to know that my computer career started with punch cards, oh. which predates tapes. Yeah. You, you couldn't okay. impress any girlfriends with punch cards. That's for sure. You cannot. Yeah. You could drop them and have a real mess, which I did. <laughs> but no, the tapes bring back many fond memories. My Special one, of course, being the Super 8, or what did we call the them? 8-track eight eight tapes. 8-tracks, track yeah. yeah. You had a backseat full of them. That's how you impress people. Yeah, for sure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So beyond that, Protos. Protos Technologies. As I say, we got into the business of disaster recovery and data storage a, a long time ago. And yes, we did start with tapes, where customers would send us tapes once a week, once a month. And we would literally put them in a safe. And as long as the customers sent us their most recent backups, we could restore them in the event of a disaster. And today's no different. We back up people and their data. It's just done a little more efficiently and a little more quick in order to get people back on their feet whenever they experience an outage in their computer systems. Right. With all these new innovations and inventions, we got to think about how we're going to protect those things. It's not, you know, a data center isn't the same as it used to be. And a data center isn't even just in one place, like in a building, like it's spread out all over an oil field now virtually. And so protecting these things, mitigating the damage, trying to keep bad actors or natural disasters from causing trouble and then, you know, recovering when those things do happen. That's something that I think, you know, is worth spending some more time on. So this kind of brings us around to Warren and Kevin, and you guys are in the insurance business and you actually kind of instigated this whole convention on the podcast that we have today. So a little bit about who you guys are and why did you bring the Protos guys on today? Thanks, Michael. And I'm actually very pleased to have everybody here. You know, Kevin and I, we are agency partners of AccraSure. And our role at IBTX is we work with businesses all the time. We're competing against the biggest agencies 
And, you know, in our world today, with everything you know about technology, one of the hot topics day in, day out is cyber insurance. And so with our agency, you know, we even last year, I think we were at like 700,000 clients worldwide. We're operating in seven countries. This is an epidemic that is global. To give you an idea of why this subject that we're talking about today is such a hot button, I mean, in 2015, cyber was like, as far as claims and what problems it was causing, was like a $225 billion problem. Now we're projecting $6 trillion. We're just five years later, right? So it's really a serious topic. And so about, I want to say like maybe a month ago, I get called on a conference call where AcroSure brought on Matt and Lance from Protos Technologies, announced that they are partners of ours, and they began to walk me through their disaster recovery, what they do, how they do it, the world of ransomware. And Kevin and I just right away, we knew this changes the game in a lot of ways because you go from the insurance world is about responding and reacting and helping a business when there's a cyber attack. Everything we learned in this call and what we're going to be talking about today is about what if you could mitigate that? What if you could proactively have a plan that would be really incredible? And with that, I'll kind of just kick it off to Kevin for a minute to say, is, was that your same takeaway? Because you know, for me, that's why I wanted you here as a partner where we sit. And then at the same time, when I think about the message we're doing today, I think Protos Technologies and our ability to kind of talk both before the incident and after is kind of a neat topic for any company. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you heard, I was like, wow, this is so interesting and amazing and something that I feel like I'm always talking about cyber risk management, but you know, never really got to see the preventative side, like you said, Warren. It was always kind of more on the back end when something happened. And really, the extortion part of cyber is probably the one we see most common and also the most time-consuming and can be the most detrimental where, you know, you get a skull and crossbones on your screen and you get the pay me this money in Bitcoin. And you're like, what the heck do I do? Most people never even had a cyber claim before. And so, yeah, there's insurance for that. But if there's a way that you can get your data, like some of the statistics, and I won't steal your thunder, Lance, but of how quick things can be restored, it was like, holy crap that's amazing like that's unbelievable so yeah it's just it's really a growing area like we're up just this so the cyber threats were going through the roof for the past 10 years but now with covid-19 it's only just put more fuel on that fire and so it depends on what statistical bureau you look at but we're looking at like a 250% increase just this year in cyber attacks so it's really amazing so is that growth over the last 10 years, is that largely due to the fact that we keep putting more and more stuff on the internet and we keep connecting more things to networks? I mean, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to hack into a pipeline, you had to like tromp out into the middle of wherever the pipeline was and like drill a hole inside <laughs> of it. So like everything is connected now. Is that what's kind of providing a lot more targets for bad actors? Well, to- you got to think about it. So now you have data on systems, right? That was the old school way, but now data is in transit. Data is residing in other people's systems because of the way the whole world is working right now and the way the cloud is. And, right, right. and so everything snowballs the effect. And then in addition to that, as when something like cyber is an uncharted territory, the regulations are low, right? Nobody has made the rules that you have to play by. And then as you 
evolve and you start to respond to these real claims where you need to take care of your customers. So what are these companies being forced to do? Even companies like Target and Home Depot, they're forced to give credit monitoring to every victim, which is pretty much every single customer in their database. And then you have regulations of what you have to actually use stamped mail for. And makes me think of the Merck claim where I bet just to send out the notices the way the regulations required, you have a million dollars of stamps and you yeah. haven't even done anything yet. Right, right. No, that, that's true. It is. And it's not something that's by unique to oil and gas by any stretch. And it makes sense for different industries to kind of learn from each other, you know, which doesn't always happen a whole lot, although it's happening more now in like the digital revolution and even in oil and gas, you know, I'm seeing a lot more receptiveness to among leaders, especially in technology and digital to say, wow, what are the other guys doing in these other industries and how are they solving these problems? Which wasn't something that was usually the first thing that was top of mind in the oil and gas industry, but that historic, that learning from other industries and also this historical perspective, because you mentioned now we have all these things that are different. I mean, so let's shift to that for a second. So Lance, you have been with the company for, I mean, you've been with Protos for, I think I remember it's a pretty long time, right? Were you a founder or, or you go way back at some point? I was the founder going back over founder. 35 okay. years. Yep. 35 years, right? So I don't remember <laughs> 35 years ago, but thanks. So yeah, <laughs> I thought of like four different jokes to say, and none of them were appropriate. I'm for, fair game. Everyone knows. I just, I just went on to the, yeah. So that whole yesterday and today perspective, I mean, you start, when you started this company, nobody was worrying about, or maybe there were, maybe they were, but it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of concern about cyber attacks. And now it's on everybody's mind. What does it look like today compared to, to back then? And, and how has that landscape evolved? Great question. Back in the day, disaster recovery referred to fire, flood, power outages, storms, ice storms, whatever. Train right, derailments, right. you know, Hurricanes, exactly. Right, yeah. That's what people thought about. And at that time, they didn't think too much about where disasters typically came from. And those all happened. And I've got stories on all of them. What was more frequent was the computer breaking, the motherboard cracking in the back of the computer, the storage drive failing, sure. somebody getting fired as an employee coming back maliciously and running a forklift through the mainframe. It all happened. Trust me. So, <laughs> you know, they're planning sure. for the, which is why you shouldn't put your yeah, warehouse. They're planning, right your exactly. They're planning for the river to go overflow its banks. And then they've got, you know, Joe Schmo that works in the warehouse getting ticked off and knowing where the mainframe is and he's going to destroy it. Those things all happened, but, and those things are all a very real possibility today, but they pale in comparison to the cyber attacks. So we still have all those potential problems, but now all the cyber crime just dwarfs everything. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's happening. I mean, you see it in, again, it's not just oil and gas, it's other industries. I think if I remember correctly, you guys started out mostly in banking where clearly there was a lot of concern about that sort of thing. 
and then some other industries, retail and stuff like that. But and you've been more recently, I think, getting involved with oil and gas companies. How does that? And, and Matt or Bruce, maybe this is a good time for you guys to chime in. But how do you? You're, you're out there. You guys are out there on the front lines working with customers. How do you see? You know, for our listeners who are who are thinking about, well, how do we compare? Right? What does it look? What does that look like in oil and gas? And how does it compare to other industries? What do you guys see? So one of the things this has done is it's forced customers to really take a long, hard look at their own environments. So historically, looking at from a DR perspective, backup perspective, organizations have been able to say, no, we haven't had a fire or flood. We haven't been hacked. That's never going to happen to us. We're backing up to tapes. We're backing up off site. We'll be fine. So unfortunately, what this has done is exposed a lot of the weaknesses in backup and retention schedules for customers that are out there. And that's one of the things that you know we try to present and bring to light for the organizations is, hey, have you looked at A, B, and C or X, Y, and Z? Because typically they may have one or two topics covered, but from a whole, from a full macro perspective, there are always going to be holes in a backup plan and solution. And all industries are unique and oil and gas is no different. And Warren even mentioned the snowball effect. Data that's being backed up offsite, if that's compromised or locked out or lost, that's going to impact facilities and infrastructure and systems right. you know, on the other side of the country even. So it's one of those things that now is being brought to light that may have historically been able to be ignored. Sure. And I think, so one of the things that we see in oil and gas, and we talk about this quite a lot, lots of people like to come on the show and talk about different aspects of this, but a lot of computing and network and data being deployed, not just in distributed data centers, but especially with, you know, IOT and, and edge computing, we're seeing this stuff, you know, being deployed in refineries, in, like I said, in pipelines, on on drill pads, out in the Permian, where there's, you know, lots of different facilities. And this is something, it's what we call the OT world, right? The operational technology world. And that's so, that's a space where IT in the past didn't play a whole lot. And those were kind of kept separate. And one reason was because the OT people knew that they were controlling something that was very sensitive. And if it was attacked or it went down or anything happened, that, you know, at the very least you could lose a lot of money and at the worst you know people could get hurt or be killed and so these systems are now being kind of retrofitted with all sorts of new digital computing technology so that we can grab all that data and do analytics with it and drive out automation and all these really cool things but from a technical perspective and i know that you know my in my early days of it and computing you know one of the basic principles was you know whenever it comes to security or kind of safety and stability, the fewer moving pieces you have, the better, the less complexity, you know, complexity increases the chance of risk. Well, we are adding complexity. So, and Bruce, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you have some comments on this, but do you see this increase with the digital transformation happening everywhere? How does this increase in complexity impact what all the things that you guys have to think about and that you have to advise your customers about? Absolutely. So, you know, a million years ago, not as far back as Lance goes, but, <laughs> but several years ago in another life, I worked with a client who was an oil and gas company drilling out in the kind of Arctic tundra of northern Canada. Right. And what they were doing was packing up a bunch of servers to take with them to, to get readings off of the platforms and so on. And you know, a lot of that data was just being transferred directly to those servers there statically. Where that's gone now is that, 
you know, with better wireless technology and all of that stuff, more of that data is coming back to home base in a more real-time fashion. And therefore, the business is now dependent on that data in a real-time fashion for, you know, operational efficiencies and all of that. Right. Well, what that means is that that piece of of the, the puzzle that's connecting back to home base now becomes a vulnerability. The systems that are, you know, we're just big old, let's call them tape recorders, back in the day are now sophisticated servers with vital data for the company, all of which makes for just enormously, let's call it juicy targets for (laughs) the bad actors. Right, sure, sure. And over that period also, the profile of the bad actors has changed. Back in the day, you know, we pictured hackers as you know, kids in their parents' basement who were super smart and were bored. Right. It's a command center. It's not a basement. It's a command center. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Today, we're talking about people whose full-time jobs this is. We're talking about, you know, state actors in play. So the whole landscape has changed and the acceleration in technology isn't just happening on the customer side. It's also happening on the the side of the bad actors as well. Right, right. So not only are the systems a lot more complex and distributed, but you have so many more interested parties, right, in, in what's going on. And like you said, and it's not just people in their own private command center, but it's people, it's, it's there, there's all kinds of organized efforts around this. But of course, we always, with this sort of stuff, we always talk about mitigation strategies and prevention. And you guys, you're in this business, both from an insurance standpoint and the technology you know, Matt, I know you're out there, you're out there working directly with customers kind of on planning and advising on this, you know, and you touched on this a little bit before, but if I were listening to this right now and I said, holy cow, I need to get these guys in here. Like if you showed up tomorrow, what's your approach? How do you advise on prevention and, and mitigation? Well, sure. So there's no way for us to prevent against everything, but we want to armor our customers to the best of their abilities. So the first is to kind of understand what is in place today, what practices are currently being followed. Do you have any retention schedules? You know, how long is the customer actually retaining their backups? Is it for maybe seven days? Is it a couple of weeks? Is it a month? One of the things that the ransomware attackers are doing is letting their attacks sit idle for maybe a couple of days or weeks and mm-hmm. then hitting them once the backups roll off. So one of the things that can counter that is trying to have a prolonged retention schedule. That's something that we can obviously discuss and try to help the customer navigate to find a a common ground. You know, what is a reasonable amount of data that we can protect for you without going overboard and saying we're never going to delete any data ever again? Right. So, right. As happy as that would make, like the hyperscalers and the cloud providers, <laughs> exactly. Probably not what everybody wants to do, right? Exactly. And one of the other things too is helping the customer understand. It's kind of shocking to hear sometimes when an organization doesn't fully understand which critical components are tied to other critical components. Where if right. you lose a certain system, suddenly before you acknowledge that conversation, it was no big deal. But when you start to dive into the weeds of the subject, suddenly they realize, well, if we did lose that system, now we can't perform any of these other operations and what are we going to do? Exactly. Those are the conversations we try to help them navigate to do their own internal discovery so we can come up with a customized solution for them 
that fits their picture. Yeah, that's what I was getting to before about the complexity of having all these interconnected systems in different places, which is, I mean, we're all familiar with the old concept of like how to take a data center and run a backup schedule and retention policies and things like that. I mean, at least hopefully most most IT shops are pretty well versed in that for the last, you know, decade or two. But how to think about that in an interconnected fashion with all these different, you know, operational systems and all the interconnected things. That's the sort of thing where I think if I were, you know, in charge of that for a large corporation, it'd be nice if somebody had a template or something to kind of help me think through all the parts and pieces because some of it's new and it's not just second nature to whoever I have that's running this stuff. And that's where the learning from other industries comes into play as well. So, I mean, have you been able to kind of develop, you know, sort of a pattern for how you approach those complexities? No general pattern per se, because every customer is unique. No two organizations are ever identical. So some may be entirely in-house, some may be entirely in the cloud, where others are going to be a hybrid mix. So for us, being the shop that we are, we try to have that personal touch where we have that conversation and try to get that understanding and customize everything you know, based on the solution at hand. Right, right. So it helps to talk. All right. So where I was going with that is you can't just buy the book and figure this out on your own, right? Exactly. It helps to have some. It does merit bringing up the way we go about it is organizing it with typically a document we call the environmental assessment form. It sounds terrible. Maybe it is. But customers frequently don't have their arms around all of their technology. So what we help them do is to organize their thoughts. Sometimes we'll sit back and scratch our heads and say, really, you don't know that? We're asking these questions and people will say, hmm, I haven't thought about that in a while. Well, what's important to us may not be as important to them until such time as we're trying to design a backup strategy. And that's our job is to help people think of the right questions and organize their applications, organize you know their storage requirements, organize just how much power they're, they're using in a compute and memory requirement. If they have that moment and they're declaring, we have to be really sure about what kind of capacity from a compute, memory, and storage and networking perspective, we have to throw at this problem to make it go away, make it go away fast. So right, right, right. the only way we do that is to organize. And typically starting off, it's a consultative arrangement and relationship with the client But we get in there, we organize it with an environmental assessment form. Of course, it's an acronym, the EAF. And we start just picking it apart until things make sense. And it's not the same answer for every application. One application could be far more critical than another. And maybe that data needs to be replicated every second. We have many customers that we're backing up every second, second and a half, literally. And then... So I was going to say, like, this is the part that I think really is the sizzle here is because when you start understanding that what we're talking about is where a client has a major breach of some kind, you know, in the case, I forget what Matt, you explained, and I don't know if I can divulge who the client was, but you have this significant client who at a certain point, all of their data is shut down off, off to the point where they can't access it. And there's a ransom. And within a phone call to you guys, it was like flipping a switch and everybody's back in business and this national or global company is back on track. 
Yeah, correct. Of course, we can't divulge the company's names for <laughs> obvious reasons. But yeah, it's one of those situations where we have come into play. And especially one of the comments made earlier on here in the discussion was this summer with COVID-19, everyone working from home, we saw a spike in those ransomware attacks and customers declaring emergencies where they needed our assistance. So again, going back to my comments on the retention schedules, we have that ability with our softwares to restore a customer's infrastructure from a given point in time prior to that attack. So the only caveat will be being able to identify when that attack occurred. And from that point in time, we can find a previous date and restore the systems from then just to get the customer back up and running and hopefully <laughs> end the negotiations with the ransomware folks but that becomes out of our hands. Yeah, I mean that's a really nice backstop cuz cuz so there's so much focus being, you know, put on trying to prevent the I mean there's this constant like you're in a tailspin in this race of trying to to stay ahead of the ransomware people, but if you know, and not that you should stop doing that, but if you know that okay, you know, if they do get us, we have this backstop where oh by the way we can still get our data back, you know, almost within seconds then it really kind of takes the the edge of that. And and Lance, you mentioned something too that is, you know, really key in the oil and gas industry, which you said people don't always know exactly what they have. So like Bruce, when you get into if you're working with customers that are really big and complicated, what do you see in in terms of like technical readiness? Is there a lot of is there is there good diligence around that? Is that something that people need to spend more more time focusing on? Like, what do you do? You, do you hold your breath and, and hope for the best when you go in there and and look and see how people are set up? It's really a mixed bag. It's certainly more shocking when you go into a really large company and ask kind of simple questions and there's a kind of pregnant pause at the end of it and you kind right. of know where, where I've never done that myself right. personally but I I've, oh, I've heard it, I've heard of people you know, doing that <laughs> and and there there's you know really small companies that are are a lot more disciplined about what they know and and sometimes that's surprising but I've been around long enough to understand that people think operationally in the moment and especially for companies like oil and gas where there are such disparate phases in their operations. Right, like, you know, right. You sometimes throw out stuff that you really need at the end of one of those processes. Sure. It really, one of the values that we bring to the table is that stock taking in relation to what Lance said earlier of, okay, where is what and how do those pieces interconnect? Yeah, and one yeah. of the things that we do with our customers is we we insist on disaster recovery tests because even after we've done that initial investigation, it's really when the rubber hits the road that people go, oh, we forgot this whole department in some cases or this single server sure. that was sitting in the back of a room sure. that nobody sure. has seen for five years. Right. But it's really important. Yeah, there's that one server that's under that guy's desk, right? That we never actually, yeah. And I feel like that's the value, you know, is that, sure, you can buy an insurance policy or, or somebody can back up your data. That's that's great. But how do you bring the pieces together as it becomes more complex? Because it's just, that's really the important part. And I feel like a parent sometimes, you know, I remember my dad telling me like, you know, just trust me, you should do this. And because you don't have the yes. experience. And there's so many times, you know, people might be in business for 20, 30 years and they've been super successful and they haven't had an issue until you do. And in our line of work, we just see these bad things happening a lot. 
And you, you just kind of have to go, look, sure. just trust, just trust me on this. Like you, you don't want to have to deal with this. Like these things are happening. So it's a lot of education and, and really bringing that all together to understand their operations and how do we mitigate everything yeah, yeah. get to that final product that's going to help them when, if it yeah. Well, yeah, let me make a, if I may, this is Lance, make a couple of comments in listening to everyone's really good points. You don't know what it's going to, what's going to be involved in the disaster until you're there. All right. You can't say, oh, there's four types of disasters. There's four types of bad guys. It's type B. So we're going to do this. That's not the way it works. In every instance I can remember, and we've had a lot, you have to think on your feet. We prepare, as Matthew said, with the testing annually that we do, and we do mock disasters. We do tests. We look at the results. We try for this. We try for that. But it's all called coordination at the time of need. And we said earlier, who does the client call? Well, they're going to call us because we have the data. We have the backup. But guess what? They're also going to call their insurance company because there's a policy in place right? And everybody has to be coordinated to make sure that all the contract's needs are met to take care of the client in the best way possible, not just from ours, but from the insurance company's perspective, from the businessman's perspective, from the person in the field's perspective. And that coordination has to be all brought together with experience. And yeah, yeah no, that's, not that's one size point. fits all by any stretch. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And that reminds me, I want to come back to what Warren was saying a minute ago, to not to let the sizzle sizzle out, Warren, because we do want to talk about some, so this stuff happens, right? And so we've talked about how we have the prevention and mitigation and the assessment that are and you got the insurance policy in place and you trust all the experts. And then, and Lance, I'm sure you have some real life stories about this, right? Like things happen and somebody has to come to the rescue. So and that's, I think, where we get into what Warren was talking about, how, you know, you're able to do things today that are, frankly, amazing compared to before. But but what about, like, any good stories about, like, where, you know, something bad happened and you were able to come in and, and turn it around? Well, I've got new stories and old stories. Well, how about an old, so do an old story first. I'm, I'm always partial to old stories, and then we'll do a new story. So. <laughs> All right. And, sort of the before and after. And so I don't get anybody that knows me well moaning. I can do this one short, guys. I really can. Yeah. So, so Lance pulls up Lance pulls up on his horse. Thank you. How did you know? Well, <laughs> I'm going to go back to Katrina. We were there for Katrina. And uh, it was a bank downtown, New Orleans. And believe it or not, and this this is the truth, the CIO had all the backup tapes in the trunk of his automobile. Of course. Where else would you? Well, because he'd take them home. (laughs) He would take them home. And he was killed in the storm. The tapes were destroyed. And we worked with the National Guard. We worked with the husband of the branch manager. We removed hard drives from computers that were on the sixth floor of a bank building that was blown apart by the storm. Believe it or not, we had them up the next day and we pulled it off so much so that FedEx at the time when we we got all the data for them, we, without the tapes and we, we knew we could get it done. We worked on it just nonstop for hours and hours getting this thing figured out. And then FedEx refused to fly 
the discs to us on an overnight flight. They said, our hands are so full, we have no time for this. And I said, a bank is going to fail. And it was basically, don't care. Right. Had it been the Pony Express, you guys would have had it. Well, the bottom line is, I knew people that knew people that knew people. And I called in a favor. And the favor was a, a friend of mine called, well, actually, he called Jub Bush. And oh. Jub had a favor owed to him. He called FedEx, had a few words, probably not real choice. And the FedEx guy called me and he said, you don't play fair. And I said, you're damn right. <laughs> right. Sure. And I but, said, send me know, those drives. We, we got them the next day and we had the bank up and running. But it wasn't using great technology. It was just using negotiations, right? It was using right. what you got to do thinking on your feet. And today is no, really no different. It's just different tools. Right. So that's what I wanted to ask you. So as you're telling that story, I had the thought, if you had the whole, that exact same scenario today with the tools at your disposal, what would it look different? How would it have gone? I mean, you still had a good outcome, but what would it look like today if you had the tools that you, that you have today? Well, for one thing, I mean, everything would be at our fingertips, right? Because today, if you watch people like Bruce, who's on this call, when his fingers start working across the keyboard and what he's capable of doing and bringing the data together and the networking, it's amazing. It's a different game today than it was before. But right, right. as the world changes, we have to change with it. And the tools that we use, and keep in mind, everybody, I'm not allowed to put my hands on a real keyboard of a customer anymore. Those days for me are past tense. All right. <laughs> I'm in that same club. Okay. With you. I'm good at yeah. pointing and asking good questions, right? That's, that's what I do. But yeah, they have a completely different tool set. And everything happens today a lot quicker than it did in the old days. So I had a fascinating conversation last week, and I can't name the company because it's too fresh, but it was a a company in Florida that had a major event, I don't know, about a month ago. We do a lot of work for the clients. Thank God the equipment that we were backing up, we pulled it off and everything worked fine. But they were backing up a lot of their systems themselves with their own technologies, and we were taking care of the other part. They didn't spare any expense. They're very smart people. They're really good technology engineers, and they got hit by ransomware very, very hard. They recovered, but they were down for a couple of days. And I had a long talk with the CIO last Wednesday, and you know, he said, Lance, I thought we did everything right. And now I didn't want to go saying, well, our systems didn't go down because, you know, knock on wood. (laughs) You don't want to put a target on your back, right? So, you know, we're arranging a conference call with that particular customer within the next week or so to pick apart what went wrong for them on their systems so that we can learn from it and we can say, all right, what did the bad guys do that you missed? And, you know, what can we do to mitigate that problem going forward in our processes? Yeah, we didn't get hit. We did it right. Did we get it right because we're really, really good or did we get lucky? And we have to think about these things all the time. So we don't want to paint a target on our back or our customer's back and say, hey, you've got protos. You you can't have any problems. What we try to do is do our very best, think it through, as Matthew said earlier, plan for the worst and really look at everyone as an individual situation and put up the best defense we possibly can. But what it takes is the human element. It isn't all automatic. And granted, we have the data all on systems and it backs up without human intervention, 
but it still takes the management team and teamwork and a relationship to secure any client in any business, oil and gas or a bank, it doesn't matter. Right. So that's interesting because you have all the new tools today, which are fantastic, but you also bring the knowledge and the wisdom of the experience of, you know, how to make these things happen. So where are we at? Okay. I think we're kind of getting up on it against time here. We're kind of getting to that point where people might start changing the channel. Although this is really interesting stuff. I did have one more thought. We have a couple more things I want to cover. One is, so Bruce, so now that we know based on Lance's description of you and your fingers doing amazing things, flying across the keys, now that we know that you are the guy in the basement command center who's actually (laughs) able to do this stuff. There are people who listen to this show who are kind of out there on the front lines technically, and they're the ones whose fingers are also in the keys. What advice would you, what's the first thing somebody should do if they realize that the proverbial substance has hit the fan and like, you know, apart from calling you, like what's a good, if somebody's out there and they're going, oh my goodness, I think that we have a problem. What do you advise people to do? I think my answer might surprise you, but probably the first thing you should do is to call your insurance company because. Ah, And it comes full circle. Perfect. <laughs> Go ahead. Was that a good plug, guys? But seriously, from a business perspective, the insurance companies have protocols about how to respond to these things. And it's important that, you know, we're partnering with the insurance companies to make sure that these things are are going as they should. One of the things that the insurance companies obviously are concerned about is repetition. I, again, can't call the name of the customer, but fairly recently we had a customer who was hit twice in like the same month because they hadn't done the work, the forensic work of figuring out, well, how did this thing get in in the first place after the first hit? And the guy just came back you know, a few weeks later on and did exactly the same thing. So the insurance companies have their protocols to you know, get the right processes started at the right times. You obviously want to get your your management team involved and start to think about business impact immediately. And then beyond that, once you start talking to us, it's, it's going to be about priorities. What do we need to get up first? What's most important to you? And then go to bed and we'll take care of the yeah. rest. So the moral is, no matter how much of a technical wizard you might be, that's a good time to stop and, and call the right people, right? And it really is. And it's, it's counterintuitive for techs because right. you know, your first thought is, okay, let's get things moving. But there are some business decisions to be made before. Yeah, sure, sure. That's good. That's good. Okay, so you did a favor for me and you brought it back to the insurance discussion when I wanted to give Warren and Kevin a chance to talk about that in terms of you know, we've talked a lot here about procedural and technical strategies. There are insurance strategies. There's also something we haven't really touched on yet, but which is all the regulatory and government requirements that play into this. So Warren and or Kevin, what do you have to say about all that, about the insurance strategy? It starts at the same place of really understanding the risk profile. So one of my clients that I work with is a building an international pipeline and that's been a really unique experience, but really understanding what it is they're going to have, what limits they're going to need. It's also important too to really understand the coverage because 
cyber insurance is not a standardized product. I won't go into the details, but you know, something like a workers' compensation policy, that coverage is dictated by state statutes and things like that. So it really doesn't matter. It's more the service that you get from that insurance carrier where there's a broad spectrum of coverages that are on the insurance side of things. So that's really critical to understand that and think through everything. To reiterate the incident response, that's probably the most important thing is is get with your broker or your insurance agent and get them involved because there is coverage for that. So all that forensic cost, pretty much